Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. If you get a microphone in front of your face and you have somebody wanting to listen to what you're saying, you can either talk about inane bullshit, like stupid rocked out tropes, like partying and shit like that, or you can talk about something that means something to you and hopefully you change his mind. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining me this week is Zach Blair, lead guitarist in the legendary punk band Rise Against. For anyone that grew up in Chicago in the early 2000s and was at all interested in rock music, Rise Against was a touchstone. We use the group's recent extended play, Nowhere Sessions, as a lens into the tradition of punk rock covers of protest songs and their live resonance. We also touch on the crucial role that metal music played in shaping Zach as a guitarist, his time as a member and writer in Guar, and how the band's success is a vehicle for its activism. In the episode notes, you'll find links to Rise Against material and Zach's podcast, Zach and Mike Make Three. Let's dive and get heavy. Zach Blair, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. It's an honor. I want to start with the Nowhere Sessions, your most recent extended play, which is a mix of live tracks and also material from Nowhere Generation and Appeal to Reason. And there's covers from CCR and The Misfits. Obviously, Rise Against has a history, like many other punk bands, of recording covers. It's part of the tradition, I think, to a certain extent. Tell me a little bit about why you chose the songs Fortunate Son and Hybrid Moments for this extended play. Well, you know, honestly, that 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 all happened. We we sort of, you know, uh, this was that happened in 2020. We had to get together and do some sort of promotional thing, and didn't, yeah. You know, new photos and and the, our album cover concept and everything. We did all that in one fell swoop because it was COVID times. Uh, it was before back vaccination, so we kind of just bit the bullet. And we're like, okay, we need to test every day. We need to get together. We have to promote this record because you know we were we were going ahead with the record's just going to come out and uh, we had to carry on we didn't know how things were going to look but you know in doing so you also have to sort of get together and you have to do stuff so we had the save our stages thing that we did at uh, the the metro there in chicago and that was with a bunch of other bands that went to their favorite venues uh to promote you know venues got hit the worst you know they um live music venues. And so there was a promotion to save our stages, the Neva, to, uh, as like an online benefit to raise money for, for uh, venues that were in threat of closing. So we got together to do that. And we decided to just do it all together. We did that. And then we got together in Los Angeles to, went straight from Chicago to Los Angeles to do all of that cover of our record, our photos, our video, all the videos, everything you see for this record we did within like three or four days. The Nowhere Sessions is, is a product of that. And so while we were together, you know, we didn't have a lot of time to practice, but we know I had, you know, a bunch of covers, you know, we know the entire Minor Threat songbook and Black Flag and, you know, other stuff. And those were just two that we knew, you know what I mean? Like we 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 knew both of those. So like, let's just try them. And we were really just kind of messing around and not really thinking that they were going to be, you know, released and recorded and and oh we knew they were recorded we didn't know what, what under 
what medium we were going to let them let them out at. And so, yeah, it's kind of cool to hear it now. And uh, we John Fogarty actually gave us a shout out for uh, Fortunate Son, which is cool. I imagine when you have recorded covers in the past, there's always been sort of a different context around recording them and you know maybe a different purpose. So you've released an album with B-sides and also with covers. And again, it's like part of, I think, like the punk lore. When I was a kid, I actually played punk rock. I didn't really play much metal. Covers were naturally like the first thing you did. And I think there's like something really fun and nostalgic about recording covers and like diving into the past. Do you have any sort of like particular or fond memories of these songs uh these particular ones that we recorded there yeah you know we we've done hybrid moments uh a few different times i remember gerard way from my chemical romance came up on stage and sang it with us in australia and then um our good buddy damien abraham from uh the band fucked up he came on and sang fortunate son with us at riot fest in september and so, yeah, I'll always remember that because uh, Damien is just such a dynamic frontman, such a great person, and uh, he's just he's a great friend of mine. So that that song will always kind of have that meaning for me now. But yeah, yeah, you know, it's always fun to play covers because, you know, musicians have their own distinct way of playing certain things, and it's always fun to kind of get in their head and try to figure out, like, why did they do this? Because, you know, like, everyone knows Ramon's songs, but Ramon's songs aren't so simple. Sometimes their arrangements are crazy, and, like, you know, they were kids just trying their hand at writing some songs, and then, you know, when you're trying to, you know, extrapolate, you know, the way you would do a song, and, like, oh, we needed the chorus here, the verse here, the bridge here, and they just don't do that things that way. You're like, why do they do three choruses in a row and then go into, you know... So it's always a real interesting sort of deep dive if you're a music nerd like I am. Yeah. Do you feel a certain weight when you take on some of these songs and perhaps ones that really like defined generations of musicians and also potentially were like flag carrying anthems for social movements? Oh, absolutely. You know, especially something like Fortunate Son, which was, you know, such a statement about the Vietnam War and it meant so much to so many people. Um and so, yeah, you do, you don't want to mess it up. You know what I mean? You also don't want to be the snot nose, like, oh, uh, this the, the punk band that's trying to, to play the song. You know what I mean? I, I think punk music as a genre is such a beautiful thing because you can be somebody that only knows a bar chord and be able to write a song or play a song or play a Ramon song. But you can also be a very well accomplished musician that, that, you know, has a craft about things and has your own individual touch and approach to stuff. Some of the better musicians I know are quote unquote punk rock musicians. And I think with our band, we tend to try to do things justice rather than just play them like a punk band. You know what I mean? That's an interesting point that there's a lot of sort of flexibility within punk rock to be expressive as a musician. And because there is a high level of pace and also emotion, you can create a lot of interesting sort of like tension and dynamic within what you do, depending on what sort of levers you want to pull. How did you approach these songs as a musician? Uh, well, I, you know, for me personally, I always go back to the source material and I try to sort of channel what maybe that guitar player was doing at the time, you know, and, and really listen to their phrasing. Because that's something that kind of a lot of people sort of don't pay atten much attention to, like the relationship of their hands. And speaking specifically as a guitar player, the relationship between their right and left hand, you know, when when those two appendages are moving and at what time and at what frequency and at what velocity and where in the beat and things like that. I get real nerdy and into stuff like that. I, I really... And then some people could just bang away at it and just go, oh, it sounds right. Maybe technically they are playing 
the right chords or notes or whatever, but I tend to sort of try to go a little bit further. But all the while, I am also in a band called Rise Again, so we definitely have our way of playing things as well. So it's it's a delicate balance. You know, you want it to sound like your band, but you also want to do the song justice. How are the songs received when you played them live? I'm thinking you were recently on tour in Europe. What was it like sort of bringing these songs if you played them on the road? And what kind of response do you get when you perform these kinds of covers that have been, if you do, that are like pretty monumental in North America and in sort of like the Western experience to a certain extent? What kind of reception do you get? That's a good question because, you know, Tim, our singer, and I just went to England for three duo shows. It was just Tim and I. Because it was, at the time that everything had to happen, it was a little bit of a precarious situation over there. And so we didn't really know if we were going to get the whole band, but we needed to do something to promote the record this year. So him and I went over there and it was fantastic. And it was just duos. I played electric, he played acoustic. And uh, we did play Fortunate Son. And it went over really well. You know, the song is a is is so old that it's either in it's sort of in the zeitgeist and the peripheral of every American because it's such a you know an anthem about war over here. You know, the, the Americans' involvement in the Vietnam War. It's a known song in England, but I we, we definitely saw a lot of people kind of zone out maybe and cow face us and just stare at us like what is this song you know they didn't really know so there was times when it went over great and then times when i think when people didn't know it really what it was you know if we pull out the misfits song at the right festival if we pull out you know hyper moments same deal you know it's it's a mixed bag with covers sometimes people know them sometimes they don't you know and the ones we choose to do are usually older punk rock songs that have a sort of date on them you know and so maybe we know them because we're in our mid to late 40s so sometimes it's there for us, I guess you could say. Well, England's like a, a very interesting sort of place to play some of this stuff. And together with the new sort of like populist political movements that are seeing pop up in Europe, I'm wondering if the sort of sentiment of a song and the sort of intuition from which a song like Fortunate Son comes about, if there is actually a new resonance with people in terms of an expectation that generations in the past would set us up for success in the future and our disenchantment that was sort of on the plate with Fortunate Son and that is also a part of like what you express uh, musically and what's expressed lyrically. Do you find maybe that that could be the case as well to a certain extent? I mean, you would hope, you know, you would only hope that it is resonating with those folks, but you know, our crowds are also range in age so much, you know, it'll go from, uh, you know, a teenager or somebody my age or even older. So, you know, it, it depends on the age if they recognize the song. And hopefully if they're not recognizing the song, they'll go and do some research. They're like, oh, what was that song they played? And they'll look it up and maybe it will resonate with them. Fortunately, with our band, we've become sort of uh, one of the stalwarts of the sort of punk rock starter kit, you know what I mean? Like you get in our band because maybe you heard us on the radio or whatever, and then you start researching the bands that we sort of talk about and you go back and you get do a deep dive. You know, I've had people come up to, to me that were like real serious punkers, you know, the guys that literally wear their influences on their shirt sleeves, you know, like their leather, their battle vest has like, you know, whatever. And maybe we were one of the first bands they got into and then they've moved on, you know, because they don't like our new stuff or whatever it might be. So 
you know, we could only hope that that is happening because that's that's a that's an honor, you know. How do you sort of feel? Because what you sort of described is an interesting, almost like you're a steward of this genre for so many people who are first getting into it. Is this sort of like where you imagined things would end up when you started playing punk rock music? I only hoped, you know. Uh, and I've, I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of the guys that got me into punk rock music. So, you know, Bill Stevenson and Stefan and the guys in The Descendants, which were, you know, my favorite band. Uh, Brian Baker is now in Bad Religion, but was in Minor Threat. You know, those, the real deal guys, you know. Um, locally here in Austin, we had the Big Boys, which were, you know, one of the, the greatest all-time punk bands. And I just got to see Chris Gates, their bassist, the other day, and Tim Kerr, their guitar player. So, you know, you get to actually commiserate and meet these people that I'm sure they didn't ever think about that as well. They probably thought that punk was only going to be around for five years or whatever it might be. So to influence anyone else the way those guys have influenced me, well, I mean, that's that's pie in the sky. That's something I never not thought, you know, I'd be a part of. I was sort of looking into your musical past and I noticed that you had performed with Guar from the late 90s and into the early 2000s. How has sort of the spectrum of heavy music shaped your playing? Oh, man. I mean, immeasurably. I wouldn't be the player I am if it wasn't for, you know, because I started out as a metal kid. I was thrash. I got into like, you know, thrash metal and punk pretty much at the same time. Cause I'm from a little shitty town in North Texas called Sherman that has nothing. Luckily we had a guy that worked at the record store in the mall that was buying cool stuff because, you know, the mall, you know, the tapes and the cassettes, they had the cruise records catalog and they also had the like sort of, combat and combat core and noise and all the cool thrash metal labels i'm so fortunate you know that you know megaforce label that this guy whoever he was was buying you know was at the camelot records and so we were able to to get this occasionally we'd go into dallas which is about an hour uh north of or south of where where we're from and go to this place bill's records and tapes which was just mecca it was just Amazing, you know, it was like a, an old, like what looked like a Target or something. It was all just records, so it was unbelievable. So we could get everything we wanted. But I was into the th real thrash metal when it was coming out, like eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine. We were buying like, you know, Death's Leprosy record when it, the day it came out, Possessed Seven Churches, the day it came out, uh, all the the Bay Area thrash stuff, you know, from Death Angel to Forbidden. Exodus, Violence, Eternal Nightmare was my, my favorite records of all time. So I was just embedded in that stuff. And my dad, thankfully, he, my dad was a, my dad was a radio DJ for his, that's what he did for a living. So he was really into the fact that we had found our own music, you know, and he liked a lot of it too. He liked heavy stuff from his, you know, he was like into Black Sabbath and, you know, Hendrix and all the like sort of acid rock and, and pre-metal, you know. And so that's how I started playing guitar was just trying to like learn thrash metal riffs. You know, I was trying to learn, you know, creator, you know, eternal, you know, whatever it might be. But also we, I mean, the same day we bought Slayer, Rain and Blood, we bought Black Flags, My War. So I didn't have the ability to align myself to any like scene because we were just trying to get whatever. If it was loud and fast and pissed people off, we were in, you know. And wearing a shirt with an upside down cross. You know, I was going to wear that to school just because I wanted to piss everybody off. And so that's where I started was, you know, metal and thrash metal. And my brother and I started a band called Hagfish that was totally straight up just trying to rip off the Descendants. 
And that did well and kind of took off in the 90s. And that's what I did for all of the 90s. We toured the world. Thankfully, we got, you know, cool labels to put our records out. And Bill, the Descendants guys produced our records. We were one of the first bands to record at the Blasting Room, which is still where Rise Against records. But Guar's bassist and the outgoing guitar player, they were from Dallas. And they were both in Dallas thrash metal bands that my brother and I worshipped. One was Rigor Mortis, which is Casey Orr, and who we had seen open for Slayer on the South of Heaven tour. And the other was Pete Lee that was in Sedition. And it was because, it was a long story, but Mike Scotia from Rigor Mortis had joined Ministry. And Ministry had toured, done some stuff with Guar. Guar needed a guitar player. He got his buddy Pete. And then Pete joined Guar. They needed a bassist. He got his buddy Casey from Rigor Mortis. Well, I grew up going to Rigor Mortis shows and Sedition shows and stuff. And so even though I had been in a punk band, we had broken up. And we we weren't a metal. I mean, we sounded like the Descendants. I don't know why Casey thought of me. He was like, hey, we're auditioning guitar players because Pete's leaving. And they flew me out and auditioned me, and I got the gig. So that was like 98, 99. And I was in until about 2002, 2003. We made the Violence Has Arrived record together. And then subsequently, I got to go back. Unfortunately, the guy that replaced me, Corey Smoot, he ended up passing away. And they needed a guy. I, you know, they're still family. They're still some of my closest friends. And so I was able to go back and write and record with them on, not their last record, but the record before last, a record called Viol- uh, Battle Maximus. And I played and wrote half of that. And it was just so cool to go back to playing metal, you know, because it's really is kind of my first gear sometimes, you know what I mean? It's like to get to double pick and gallop and all that stuff. You know, I love it. I'm still such a metalhead. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Zach Blair in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra present shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. Be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorched Tundra festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode with the nerds in your life, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Zach Blair. Guar is a really interesting sort of touchstone in the metal world, too, because it has a strong musical component, but also there's the performative and shock aspects of what they do. And some of those acts that occur on stage, many of them are pretty political in a lot of ways, and they make some pretty strong statements. How did like being on stage with all this stuff happening shape you as a performer? Well, it's interesting, you know, to to be involved in something so thought-provoking, because I'm glad you said political with Guar, because, yeah, a lot of it's just silly, you know, nonsense and, and you know, shock value for the sake of shock value. But it is also was trying, the overarching thing was to try to, to make you think about certain things, because there's always a political aspect to Guar as well, whether they were, you know, cutting the head off of some politician on stage or whatever it might be or celebrity, but the whole thing is an art project and it always has been an art project. And to be part of that was, you know, sort of visceral in a weird way. Cause you would see, you know, from literal people getting squirted in the face with fake blood to them responding or reacting to something that you were doing in such a way that was 
broad strokes and not just some sort of subtle like, oh yeah, I see what you're doing. And Rise Against, to a certain extent, is is also involved in that sort of manner of of getting a message out and message across as well. Um, both bands have been protested. Uh, both bands have had death threats. You know what I mean? It's odd to be a part of that on the other end. You're just trying to play music. But then again, I feel like music, you know, first and foremost is art and art is at its best when it's provoking thought. So, it, you know, I, I've i never really made the correlation before, but there is a correlation between it. You know, it is thought provoking, it is political and it is a statement. That was something I was thinking of as well, is that both of those bands create a level of discomfort for people in addition to like the surprise element of the shock. One of the things that I was also thinking about is it's a little easier in some respects as a lyricist to project your activism and to talk about your activism because you have the voice as your sort of communicative mechanism. And for you as a guitar player, how do you sort of use that acts, if we can continue with the guar visuality here, how do you sort of use that as a means of sharing your activism? Or is it like a part of a whole picture? I think it's more a part of the whole picture. You know, the, the, the thing as a guitar player that I can do to facilitate the um, overall effort of what the band is trying to do is just to try to do my job as best as I can, you know, to perform the best I can, to make it the most concise deliberate effort that will resonate with people. You don't want to see somebody sweat. You don't want to go to a show and, you know, you don't want to see a comedian forget his joke. You don't want to see a band fuck up. And if you do see them fuck up, you don't want to see them, you don't want to see it affect them. You know what I mean? Like, oh, my facial expression or whatever it might be. Because if you don't let them know you fucked up, maybe you didn't fuck up. You know, that's part of professionalism as far as I'm concerned. It's covering up your fuck ups because everybody's going to. We're all human. But I think from my end of things is to stay in shape, to practice as much as I can, you know, to really take my instrument and my job seriously. So the overall performance is effective to everyone that sees it. No matter if you've been to 15 shows on this tour, your every performance is visceral and and it's making a statement and you remember them all so that's the thing i can do really the the best thing i can do is to sort of um facilitate the overall experience to everybody that's coming because we're not doing it for ourselves we're doing it to spread a message across and beyond that just like this what i'm doing with you you know be able to talk about our points and our, you know, what we're all trying to do as a unit and get my story straight with everybody else. So I'm not floundering and giving false statements and stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's a job. It's a job like anything else. And when you're trying to say something with it, it's even, there's even more impact to it, you know. And we've always said, if you get a microphone in front of your face and you have somebody wanting to listen to what you're saying, you can either talk about, you know, inane bullshit, like, stupid rocked out tropes like partying and shit like that or you can talk about something that means something to you and hopefully you should change his mind so you got to take that seriously uh or i think you have to take that seriously you don't i guess you have to but i i prefer to you know
getting into sort of some of the activism part of what you do as a supporter of Sea Shepherds and PETA and a Gets Better project. When did activism become an important thing for you coming from North Texas, an area that we may consider to be a little conservative? How did activism find you or you find it? Uh, you'd not be wrong in considering that place to be conservative. I think starting at as a kid, I didn't know what liberal meant. I didn't know what any of these things meant. I just knew that I didn't think the way everybody else thought. And I couldn't understand why they thought the way they thought. I couldn't understand racism or homophobia, even at the youngest age. I never understood it. And my parents did a good job of helping me, you know, pointing out how wrong a lot of that was. I always knew I was an outcast. I always knew I didn't fit in. My brother and I, we were always made fun of. We were always picked on. We always got in fights. I mean, fist fights because we were kids that wore, had our hair long and wore punk rock and metal shirts. And we were the only two. You know, we had a, a friend of ours, a guy named Billy, that was, you know, with us every step of the way as well. And we had our dumb thrash metal band that was terrible. And, and then we joined the other thrash metal band in town that they were actually really good. But they were like dropout kids that didn't even go to high school. You know what I mean? So we found our little tribe, but we never fit in. And I didn't want to fit in. I realized I was at you know, the youngest age. It was like I wanted to fit in because I didn't like how this felt. And then I realized like, oh, no, this is how I'm getting out of here. Because I don't fit in, this is I'm going to go find where I do fit in. And that led me on the journey of constantly, you know, like where I am now, really. But, to, you know, to answer your question, also the bands back then, the metal bands and the punk bands, there was always some a political uh, slant, you know, like anything from the Dead Kennedys, Minor Threat, to, I mean, you know, Exodus. And, and, and other bands had political messages and political songs and and... It sort of started opening our eyes. Anthrax, for sure, you know. Like we were obsessed with Anthrax. Metallica, you know, the whole Master of Puppets uh, album cover and, you know, everything. So it just seemed like they went hand in hand. So that introduced me to politics and, if anything, messages, you know. And especially, like, say, like, take a band like Minor Threat, like personal politics, you know, about not drinking, smoking, doing drugs. My parents did all three. My brother and I just... We didn't. We decided we didn't want to do that before we heard Minor Threat, and then to have this band and this movement that's sort of like, oh God, we're not complete weirdos. You know, there are other people. They're just not here. So I think that's what it was. It was a personal thing first, where I was like, okay, I'm weird, but I know there's people like me out there because I'm listening to this record, and they feel this way, and they agree with me that that homophobia is fucked up and racism is fucked up and they don't drink or smoke or do drugs, whatever it might be. I just need to go find them. So I think that's what it, it was. That, it was that personal call first, you know, and then it was hard to differentiate between music and politics. It's just, they go hand in hand. That's a great response. And I feel as though metal going back into like Black Sabbath and into Iron Maiden, I mean, some of the most popular songs from those artists' discographies, whether they're anti-colonial pieces or whether they're political pieces, they are extremely, you know, well thought out treatises to a certain extent. I always found it kind of interesting that sometimes that those messages I felt kind of got lost because maybe fans weren't into it or or they weren't listening with those sorts of gears turning. Right. I mean, you know, take a song like you just said, Iron Man yourself, you run to the hills. Mm -hmm. If that's not mm -hmm. a political statement or anti-colonialism statement, I mean, I don't know what it is, you know. Um, and it gets sold to you as this, you know, just fun metal song. But then you see the video and it's fucked up, you know, and you realize what it's about. Yeah, I, I, I just feel like 
I don't know of another music really that has done as much for that situation as punk or metal. You know what I mean? It does very much seem like, I don't care what the punk band is, they're going to have a political song somewhere in there, or the metal band somewhere in their canon, you know? And I, I'm honored that, you know, Rise Against has sort of carried that torch, really. I think that as a band that's had an enduring level of popularity, you have a sort of unique platform to share your political insights and also to share some of the specific causes that are important to you and that are part of the canon that is Rise Against. And some of those are Sea Shepherds and PETA. So the environment and animals are obviously like uh, pretty important to you. When did those sorts of specific causes come to you? You know, it's very odd that sometimes punk rock and the way a person eats <laughs> has a correlation. Uh, but I do feel like it's more just animal rights and whatever, you know, activism or, or organization is speaking for animal rights. You know, there's people that are actually not even vegetarians that support animal rights or are anti-factory farming because, you know, of all the pollution, it's such a huge pollutant. And there is a way to do that that doesn't involve that. So there are people that take up that cause, even if they're not vegetarians or vegans or whatever it might be. You know, there's only one vegan in Rise Against and people are shocked usually to hear about that, but it's the truth. Uh, a lot of people are like, we're vegan because you guys. It's like, well, I'm not a vegan. I never have been. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't mean to let anyone down, but there is only one vegan in our band. Uh, but it's more just there's so much involved. There is animal rights, which is, you know, these things are living sentient beings that get murdered uh, just so we can eat when there's plenty of food otherwise. And then to store and house and and keep these things alive until we want them dead. It's a huge, huge environment polluter. And so... That seems to be the biggest cause lately, at least, because we are actually in our lifetimes seeing the effects of global warming in real time, a lot quicker than everybody thought. And I do feel like factory farming, large factory farming is one of the largest contributors to that. So, I mean, all you got to do is step outside and you can see that. You know. Yeah, or walk into a grocery store. Yeah, just open your eyes a little bit. And I think it is important to tie these things together because animal rights and factory farming, they impact the environment. And also you're talking about the sacrality of living to a certain extent, that things have a right to live and that is cut short or where the track of the existence of a species is based on our need to eat. They are pretty tied up. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You know, when there's, when there's alternatives in other areas that don't require killing the earth and innocent animals, you know, or defenseless animals, more importantly, you know. The band has been around for 22 years and thinking back, like you've outlived so many presidents and so you've seen so much history in your lifetime as a musician just with this band. Do you feel as though modern punk has made an impact on the political trajectory of our country or that there's been a resonance with it over time? I think there's been a resonance for sure. And, you know, it, it remains to be seen. However, you know, here in Texas, we have Beto O'Rourke that's now running for governor who has ran for, you know, senator, he's ran for uh, president. Uh, he was in a punk band with Cedric Bixler from uh, At The Drive-In and Mars Volta. And he often refers to punk rock bands. You know, he has, he's like, you know, skates and all that. So, I mean, directly, yes, with him. Uh, with younger candidates, you know, it's kind of hard to escape, 
you know, as of the 90s, punk became the mainstream. So it's like if you turn on TV or the radio, there was a long time where at least you knew the word punk rock. And, you know, it's debatable whether a lot of those bands that were breaking through were quote unquote punk rock. You know what I mean? That's debatable, but it doesn't matter the fact that, that they called themselves that and everybody knows that. So I would imagine younger candidates, absolutely, you know, I'd prefer that. And maybe outside of Beto even admitting that, you know, minor threat bands like that meant something to him. I would hope other candidates did. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point is that we're talking about genres of music that were still at the point of some type of maturation. And the same goes for like heavy metal music too, is that now as older politicians are are making their way out and younger politicians are finding their voice and finding opportunities, that they have a new set of background and inspirations that sent them there and that potentially in the future we're gonna see more punk rock and heavy music become acceptable forms of music in the mainstream to a larger extent that politicians can actually, in a funny way, play a role in creating that instead of being adversarial to it. Right, right. Yeah. Hopefully we will see that. That'd be great. <laughs> Rise Against is a band that is pretty tied to Chicago. I mean, my experience as a, as a youngster and listening to Rise Against in the early days, that was something that we were pretty proud of, of having a band from our city that was becoming at that point and now in retrospect is very tied to the next generation of that genre of music. So your perspective is interesting in that regard because you're from Texas and have a little bit of a background as a non-Chicagoan. So from your perspective, why is Chicago still important to the band? Well, I think the in and of itself, you know, Tim and Joe grew up there, grew discovered punk rock there, got to see all the great between the two of them, all the great Chicago punk bands, whether it was, you know, Los Crudos or Limperist or uh, Naked Raygun, Peg Boy, Psychic Cato, the Blue Meanies, Slapstick, you know, all these great Chicago seminal punk bands. Uh, screeching weasel and so i think it fortified and and made those guys who they were do you know what i mean and who they are now and there's definitely no rise against without that influence and then the city's just been so good to us ever since you know what i mean you're right the city has been proud of us and taken us as theirs you know the city this year named a rise against day you know um which ended up being the, the day our record came out and and it's just We've been taken care of and treated so well and respected so much by the city that it's hard to sort of have a rise against without the city. And you're right. You know, I joined the band after they had formed. So and at a time when the band was so busy that it never really mattered where I lived. So I never moved there. But I feel like I am there so much. You know what I mean? That I do feel like I'm from there. and I do feel like it's a home away from home. And I do have my haunts and my spots and my places I feel comfortable in the middle of the city and all that stuff. So our, our drummer, Brandon, he did live there during the seminal, formidable, formidable years of the band. He lives in Colorado, where he's from now. And, you know, we're a little spread out, but I, I, I'm in Austin, Texas. Brandon is in Colorado, and then Joe and Tim are still there in Chicago. But, you know, every night, Tim says, we're Rise Against from Chicago, Illinois. So, you know, I think just that tribute every night is speaks volumes, even though only half the band still lives there. As far as a collective, we sort of feel like the band is from there, you know. 
I think that in Chicago, we sort of suffer from this syndrome where we feel as though the entertainment industry has been stolen from us by New York and LA. You can also call it like second city syndrome to a certain extent. So I think it is important. That sense of place is certainly important to the people that live here. It's interesting. That's something that you can feel even though you're not from here. Obviously, you can feel embraced by other places. Yeah, for sure. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and- you know, it was very overwhelming once I joined Rise Against. But, you know, my band Hackfish in the 90s, we broke in Chicago before anywhere else. We did well there first. And so we would do tours just straight up from Dallas to Chicago and back. You know, it was like one of the first sort of adopters of our band. And so it's always been, a, for me, a special place, even before I was in Rise Against. I've always loved it, you know. And I played everywhere there was to play there before, you know, from... Loud Jacks, Double Door, The Vic, Aragon, everywhere, you know, before I was in Rise Again. So I've been able to kind of get all around this place, you know. Have you any sorts of things for people to look forward to going into 2021? We have a lot coming up next year, uh, Rise Against. Some things I can't really talk about yet, but we're going to be real busy. So I can say that. We have a lot of things we've already announced, but a lot of things are getting talked about right now, too, that I can't say. And I'm always bad about saying things before I'm supposed to. So I don't want to get myself in any hot water. But yeah, just stay tuned to our social medias and uh, the, the website and stuff like that. Zach, thanks for taking the time to join us on Heavy Hops today. Thank you so much much for having me. I really appreciate it.